I'm so glad you're here. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We begin reading in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember from therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, it's good to be in your house before your word. Lord, assisted and ministered to by your spirit. Lord, it's an amazing thing that you do, that you take these words from so many years ago and yet apply them on this day to every person who walks into this room. Lord, that's a supernatural thing that you do, and we don't want to miss it this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. We are winding down our sermon series about a church story. Remember, we've been following the story of the church in Ephesus from its beginning all the way to the last book of the New Testament. And here we are in that last book of the New Testament. And we've been trying to follow along and understand all the different makeups of the life patterns and life stages of a church. And we've just kind of been putting ourselves in their footprints and in their places as we look at these passages about the church in Ephesus. Here's a quick rundown on where we are. It's been about 50 to 60 years since Jesus rose again. That's the beginning of the church. That's the beginning of the profound supernatural church that exists. Specifically, we are now about, when we read this passage of Scripture, we are now about 30 years from the beginning of the church at Ephesus. You remember that from the book of Acts, where Paul is just kind of passing through. He's actually in a hurry to get some place else, stays for a few weeks, preaches the gospel a few weeks, and then says, listen, I got to go, and he leaves it in the hands of a couple of church members, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and they kind of build up and start this church. And so that the next time that Paul comes through, he finds this strong, vibrant church with some spiritual immaturity, but an alive place. 
And he's like, wow, this is a great place to work. And he stays for two and a half years in that place and does ministry. And his heart is so knit to this place that every time he passes by, he tries to connect with the leaders that are in that church. And in fact, he sends Timothy uh, to pastor this church. He sends them letters from jail. And in fact, when we're reading this passage right now, it's about 20 years after he sends the letter that we call Ephesians. It's about 20 years since he sends the letter to Timothy, their pastor, that we call First Timothy. In fact, a lot has happened in this amount of time. In fact, since we've looked at these passages of Scripture, we come here to Revelation chapter 2. Paul is gone. He's been executed. Timothy is gone. All of the disciples are gone. In fact, every single one of the disciples have been executed in some way or another. The only person left is John. And he is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And God sends him a vision. At the close of the apostolic age, he receives this vision that covers many things about here is how to live in these days and how to be ready for what happens next. Included in that is a letter directly to the churches of Asia. Remember, I think it was last Sunday we talked in Acts chapter 19 that it says the church in Ephesus was so powerful that all of Asia heard about Jesus. Now John is writing a letter 20 to 30 years later to all of these churches that exist in Asia because of the ministry that happened in Ephesus. So the question that we really want to look at today is this is how the church began these are some of the things it wrestled with. But 20 to 30 years later, how's it doing? Is it still a strong church? How has the passage of time treated this church in Ephesus? What is the status of the church in Ephesus? We haven't checked in in a couple of decades. How are they doing? Well, we want to look at that as we read this passage this morning. But I also want us to listen to this carefully because I want us to listen to this really in about three different ways. I want us to listen to what God says to the church in Ephesus. I want us to listen to that in terms of what God might say to our church today. And I want to listen to this in terms of not just what God would say to our church, but I want, to, I want us to listen to what God might say to me personally, what God might say to you personally in this passage and then I also want to just think as well about our families. I don't know why God has put this on my heart this morning, but I, but I want us to make sure that we listen to this in terms of our families. So listen to all the words that we're going to talk about. And this applies to our church. It applies to you. And it applies to our families. So let's dig in and let's listen to what it is that I think God has for us from these opening words of Revelation chapter 2. The first thing that I want you to hear is that sometimes we can miss the strengths that are in our lives. Sometimes we can miss our own strengths. You know, I have a feeling that report cards are different today. 
okay? But, but back in, in my day, and, and nothing makes me feel older than saying back in my day, but, but back in my day, it was a mystery what was going to be on that report card. I think today, most parents can check in and, and see almost daily how the grades are going and how things are going. I know they can do that in a lot of parishes, but back in my day, there was four times a year, they sent you home in that little brown envelope sealed your report card that held your fate probably at least for the next four weeks. And you open that report card up and, and, and if, I, if I were you, I would open it up before you got home. You needed to not be surprised at the same time your parents were surprised. You, you needed to see what was coming. You needed to, to prepare your heart and your soul because here is the revealing of what kind of student your parents have raised and how they're going to feel about that. Well, here in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus is getting a report card. And the church in Ephesus is getting a report card, not from John. The church in Ephesus is not getting a report card from Timothy or from Paul. The church in Ephesus is getting a report card directly from Jesus. Jesus says, write this down. And so the letter is sent to the church in Ephesus. Somebody in the congregation in Ephesus has the responsibility of opening. I don't think it's a little brown envelope, but it's the equivalent of a little brown envelope. They're going to open it up in the middle of church, and they're going to read Jesus' report card on their church. There's a Greek word for that. It's called gulp. Oh boy. Imagine if someone were to come down the aisle and say, I've got a word from Jesus. He's going to give us the report card on Woodland Park Baptist Church. Now, I tell you, the first thing I would do is I would read it real quick before I told you what it said. I, I don't want to be surprised at the same time you're surprised. I, I want to know, what is it that Jesus says about our church? You would kind of lean in. It's funny, churches are a place that collect opinions. Have uh, you know, it's like the front, like your cars where it collects love bugs, churches collect opinions. Everybody's got an opinion about church. But there's only one opinion that really matters. And it's not mine. And it's not yours. It's Jesus's. That's the only one that matters. And so here is the church in Ephesus getting this report card directly from Jesus. What is it going to say? Well, what do you know? It's actually a great report card. As you read these verses, notice what it says. It says, I know your work and your toil. The first note on the report card is that Jesus says, I know that you are a church that works hard. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing. A church needs to be a place that works hard. There's no space, there's no room for a lazy church that just sits around waiting for someone else to do the work. Jesus looks at that church and says, man, I see you are a church that sweats. You are a church that gets things done. You're a church that recognizes an opportunity and a ministry, and you jump in and you grab it. 
wait a minute, that's like an A. Right there on the report card, that, that's an A on the report card. That, that's pretty good. The second thing that Jesus says about the church in Ephesus is, you are a church that is doctrinally sound. He says, you hate false teaching. You hate the things that are evil. You have tested apostles to see whether they are false, and when you found out they are false, you have said, you are false, and get out. And In fact, he even talks about this group called the Nicolaitans, and the Nicolaitans get mentioned several times in Revelation. We don't know exactly what was up with the Nicolaitans, but we know this. They were teaching something that was a false doctrine that was destructive to the church. And Jesus says, you, can, you smell that false doctrine. You could tell that false teaching, and you would not allow it anywhere near your church. That's great. Man, that's another A. That's another good report. You are a church that is doctrinally sound. And then he says, you are a church that endures and hangs in through tough circumstances. Now take a look at this in verse 2. It says, I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance. Now look at verse 3. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up, and you have not grown weary. There's some hard times that they're in. All those apostles have been executed. John is on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. There is pressure on every single believer to denounce their faith. And yet the church is holding strong and it's holding steady and it's enduring. It says that they are hanging in there four different ways in that passage. It's a great word. You ever see those numbers on the back of people's cars? The, the, the 3.1, that, that's a 5K. The 13.1, that's a half marathon. 26.2, that's a marathon. 70.3 is a half Ironman triathlon. And when you see somebody that's got the 140.6, then you just tip your cap to them because they completed a full Ironman triathlon. Now, you know what stickers you don't see? 25.5. The, the, the marathon is 26.2 miles. Nobody gets a sticker that says 25.5. I started. I, I went a long way. Went more than a lot of people. But yeah, I didn't finish. I went most of the way, but when it got tired and when it got hot and when I got thirsty and when, when a lot of other people weren't around anymore, I just kind of dropped out. Nobody gets a sticker that said, I went most of the way. I almost finished. No. The kind of people that we want to be is that we want to send a message that says, what I started, I finished. And Jesus says to the church there in Ephesus, you are the kind of people that are hanging in there and you are going to finish what you start even as hard as the circumstances are. I got to tell you, that's not just an A. That's, now I've heard about these, but that's an A+. And in fact, if that's my report card, I'm running home. 
I mean, I'm racing home. Mom, Dad, it's report card day. I want you to see my grades. Jesus has told me that my church is doing great. We are hard workers. We are doctrinally sound, and we're going to hang in there until the race is finished. Man, who doesn't want that to be a word for their life? Who doesn't want that to be a word for their church? Who doesn't want that to be a word for their family? You know, sometimes we can be surprised by the good report. We are expecting the news to be bad news. Mostly because we're measuring ourselves wrong. We're comparing ourselves to other people. We're comparing ourselves to outward results. We look at another family. We look at another person. We look at another church and say, well, they're doing so much better than we are. First of all, you know, what someone's front yard looks like and what their backyard looks like isn't always the same. And sometimes we have this insecurity that we just look around at another family, another person, another church, and we, oh, we say, oh, they, they must be getting it all right. They must be getting it all together. I had lunch with one of our associational leaders, and I, I asked him, I said, man, this COVID stuff is hard. He said, yeah. I said, what church in our area is like knocking it out of the ballpark? Because I feel like, man, how, how come we're not knocking it out of the ballpark? He said, there's nobody knocking it out of the ballpark. It's hard. Stop comparing yourself to what you imagine to be great about someone else to discover that what God may see inside of you is a much better grade than you would imagine for yourself. Because we've been comparing ourselves to other people. We have been imagining what we're supposed to be. When he looks at our life and says, man, you are doing the hard work. You are staying doctrinally sound and you are hanging in there during tough times. Stay with it. You're doing great work. See, I think sometimes we can walk around with an insecurity when Jesus wants to tell us, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged. What you are doing matters. The church in Ephesus is a church that's got good bones, got good structure. I would tell you that if I were to measure our church, I think you could say the same thing. This is a church that knows how to work hard. This is a church that's committed to being doctrinally sound. This is a church that's hanging in there even during hard times like we've not seen in a lifetime. Be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. Might be true about your family as well. That you may be walking around, oh, we're... Man, if you're getting the core things right, be encouraged in that place. Now, I do have to say that as we look at the passage, we also have to acknowledge that we can miss our own blind spots. We can miss our blind spots. Here's a rookie mistake on that report card. Anyone ever make this mistake? You just look at page one because that's got the grades. You know, I did really good in geography. I never got lost going to school a single time. I, 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 did, I did great on geography, and, and I did okay in English and in science, you know, but, but, but I did okay. It's all A's and B's on page one. Look at page one, all A's and B's. But here's the rookie mistake, not looking at that back page. You remember what's on that back page? 
the conduct report. Somebody's got that. There's a teacher right there. Says it's that con- she's filled out that back page. Some teacher filled out the back page for me every single time. Says Tim is a sharp student, but he just talks too much. He's disruptive in class. He feels like he always has to have something to say. Now I've outgrown all of those things. You'll see. <laughs> Yeah, most of them, a couple of them. Okay, one of them maybe. But, but it's that conduct report. And as we look at the report card for Ephesus, there's a conduct report there too. Because Jesus comes and he says to the church, he says, but I have this against you. It's, it's the conduct report. It says you have, you've lost your first love. You have kept all all of the patterns, but you lost the passion. We've been thinking about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a believer in Christ, and we've been trying to talk about it as we work through this Ephesus series, and as we just continue to think about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. And we've been using this definition, and it rolls through before service, and we talk about it in most services, in most sermons, it says a growing disciple finds joy by embracing the pattern, priority, and purpose of Jesus. In fact, I think almost every week, either Michael and I have talked about being the kind of person that follows the pattern, the priority, and purpose of Jesus. That you love the things that Jesus does. You do the things that Jesus does. You have the disciplines that Jesus has in your life. And I think that as Jesus would look at the church in Ephesus, he would say, you have kept the patterns, the priority, and the purpose of Jesus. But what he looks at and says, but your joy is missing. Your joy is missing. And let me tell you, as much as we are going to try here as a church to help us learn how to do the pattern, the priority, and the purpose of Jesus, if we ever come to the place where we forget that we're supposed to do it with joy and with our whole hearts and out of love, then we will have failed in the pursuit of being a true disciple of Jesus. And he comes to the church in Ephesus and says, your patterns are great, but I can't hear your heartbeat. Your heartbeat is buried beneath your habits and just the familiar routines of your life. This heart is a really big deal. Didn't your parents always care more about that conduct report than the regular grades? At least they always told me that. It is your, your, the heart stuff is the stuff that matters the most. This statement about love is a big deal because it's the heart of our faith. Listen to some of these verses up here on the screen. It says, for God so loved. 830 got that without even being cued. You ready? Let's try it again because I know you're as good as 830, all right? For God so there we go, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Our whole faith is built on love. The next verse, this is when Jesus restores Peter after Peter denies Jesus, and Jesus comes to him after the resurrection and says, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you 
me and said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I, you, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. One more verse, two more verses here. He says, we, because he first loved us. Jesus started the whole thing. This whole relationship is built on love. You have the ability to love because he started it. He gave it to you. He initiated it with love. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not a t-shirt. It's not a membership in a church. It says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have for one another. It's interesting, quick side note, you know who recorded every one of those verses? It was John, and John likes to call himself the beloved disciple. And so as John hears this, it echoes deep inside of him, and he says to that church in Ephesus, it is so great that you have the right patterns, but where is your passion, where is your heart, where is your love? One of the words that I try to give to married couples as often as I can is don't ever settle for just being efficient domestic partners for an effective home. Don't settle for just being people who can pay the bills, transport the kids to all the places, and keep the house standing straight up. Listen, not that those things aren't hard to do and it doesn't take a whole lot of your energy. But one of the worst things that can happen to your marriage is when you settle for, listen, we've just got to keep this as a semi-well-oiled machine that doesn't stop and say, but at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and the end of the day, I love you more than anything else. Don't settle for being effective and efficient domestic engineers because that's never enough to hold it together. What holds it together through the thick and the thin, the highs and the lows, is that you say to each other and live it out in your life, I love you. The relationship becomes fragile, brittle. Anybody been, don't raise your hand, but don't ask me how I know this. I read it in a book. Without love, it barely can hold itself together. Your relationship with Jesus who died for you is built on love. And if we try to live off of habits and effectiveness and routines, our spiritual life will become just as brittle. Church, my dear church, I believe that this is a church with good bones. I believe you all are hanging in there during one of the toughest seasons that this church has ever faced. But it is my prayer for our church 
that our hearts would be exposed once again. That our hearts would live at the surface. That our hearts would be engaged in all that we do. And we'd be stirred in our emotions, in our love, and we would remember who he is and what he does for us. Be careful that we don't miss our blind spots. We also need to just pay attention that we don't miss our remedy. We don't miss our remedy. Now, I want you to notice that this passage of Scripture says, listen, if you don't get this right, listen, that this is, Jesus ain't playing. We can get that on a t-shirt. Jesus ain't playing. He says, listen, if you don't get this together, I'll remove your presence from the churches. You will cease to exist. It happens. Churches close down, get abandoned because the routines and the habits aren't enough to keep a church alive. The last picture here, this one looks alive and it looks doing great. It's because someone bought it and turned it into a brewery. He says, listen, I don't need your building. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your building. And if you lose your heart, I don't need a gathering of people in that place that doesn't love me. But, but here's the real thing that I want you to hear. Don't miss the remedy because in the very nature, the character of Jesus, he says, I can show you the way home. I can show you the way home. If you have lost your heart, your passion, if you have slipped in your affection for the things of Jesus, he says, I can show you the way home. In fact, the letter has its own what now. It says, remember from where you've come. Remember where you were. It says, repent. That means you grieve over where you are. You don't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, these things happen. I got busy. I'm better than most folks. No, we look at where we should be and we look at where we are and we grieve over that and say, what will it take for my heart and my life to get to where I'm supposed to be? And then it says in the passage, repeat the things that you did at first. A couple weeks ago, I asked somebody, what's your first memory of church? And they told me that their first memory of church was when they were seven or eight years old and they got saved that Sunday and they remembered going home and doing cartwheels in the front yard. How great is that? Now, real quick, we're supposed to be doing cartwheels. Now, as you get older, maybe the cartwheels aren't really what you're going to be able to pull off. Start with a somersault. But the point being, do you remember when Jesus rearranged your whole life on a daily basis? Go back to those days. Spend the time in the Word. Let your heart and your emotion and your feelings be engaged in worship. Expose who you are to worship, to the Word, to the people around you.
Man, he says, if you'll do this, the way home is an easy path. And he says that for your family. He says that for your life. And he says that for our church. The way home is an easy path home. Remember, repent, and repeat the things that you used to do. See, if you are in Christ, your condition is never terminal. Your condition is never too far. Remember, repent, and repeat. And he says the door is wide open for you to come home. Brian's going to come and prepare to lead us in a moment. This passage is always an important passage anytime we look at it. But I think it's a really important passage for us in this season. Because I think all the junk that's out there can put layers over our lives that have hidden our hearts. And so for your family, for your life, for our church, I want to peel some of that junk back. And so as Brian leads us in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond in three different ways. Are you ready? The first one, this one's really hard, okay? I want you to sit and I want you to reflect. You're doing it. Great. Super. I want you to just sit and reflect. But as Brian leads us, what I want you to do is I want you to stand right where you are as you claim some ownership and say, all right, Jesus, I heard this for my life. And this is what I need to do. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to talk to anybody. This is you and Jesus, but this is saying, I hear you. And for my life, I hear you. So what I would like you to do is just stand when that moment comes. Sit and reflect. Then stand as you reflect on what this means for your life. And then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to kneel as you think and pray about what this means for our church. What this means for the body of believers that's Woodland Park Baptist Church. What this means for the body of the believers that's the 11 o'clock alive service at our church. So sit and reflect. Stand and own this for your own life. Kneel and pray for your church.